Good evening, everybody. It is so great to see you. I, I know that it is, uh, I say it every week, I know it's a busy week. I know that Parents Weekend doesn't fill you with a sense of accomplishment and joy as you consider your course load. So thank you for, uh, my bubble's upside down. Thanks for being here tonight. I know there's a lot of things you could be doing with your time. It's really, really sweet to be with you uh, and to be, with this, to be with this community this evening. We're going to continue our conversation, our series through the book of, of Colossians this evening. And um, we're, the, the idea behind this whole this whole series is that Jesus is enough. Uh, of all the things in the world and all the places that we have needs and hopes, Jesus is enough and he's the only one who's enough and he's more than enough. And so what we're going to be talking about tonight is this idea that Jesus is uh, enough for our allegiance, that he alone has enough of what it takes to be worthy of our allegiance. And we're going to be looking at a passage which is one of the most famous uh, passages in the New Testament um, definitely one of the most famous passages outside of, of the Gospels. And um, it's the kind of passage that uh, books have been written on these eight verses, like, a whole, like whole books have been written on them. And, and when, you, when you look at these books in the preface, the author says something like, you know, one book isn't enough to capture everything that's going on in this passage. So, and and I, don't, I don't talk about my process too much, but I, I, I've been pretty daunted thinking about how to talk about this. So, so I just want to say at the beginning that um, there's going to be ideas and concepts and questions that arise through this text that, I, that, I, that I'm not going to address or not going to address adequately tonight. And uh, if you want to talk more, I, I hope you'll talk to your friends. I hope you'll talk to me. Uh, my favorite thing to do is to get coffee and talk about life and the Bible and God. That's like my favorite thing. So if you ever want to do that about this or anything else, just, uh, you know, holler at me. Come find me. My, uh, my numbers and the emails you get every week. Just shout loudly from campus, and, uh, and I'll be there. So with that in mind, we're going to read, uh, it's, it's, if you have your Bible, it's Colossians 1, 15 to 23, or it's printed on the back of your hand. That would be great for you to be looking at it as we read together this evening. <clears throat> Starting in verse 15, he, and that's, that's Jesus, the son, who we've just been reading about. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Pray with me, and we'll get started. Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm glad that as we come together this evening, as we come to your word, as we come to be reminded of who you are, that you see us, and you know us, and you care for us. 
Uh, I pray that you would be near to us in this time and that your spirit would be at work right now through your, through your words so we might know you and love you more and love one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite movies as a kid uh, is called Hook. Uh, I don't know if anyone has seen Hook. This, is, this movie is probably 25 or 30 years old now, but uh, Hook is, stars Robin Williams, and he plays a kind of uh, bad attitude attorney named Peter Panning. And, and it turns out, although Peter doesn't remember this, or Robin Williams doesn't remember this, that he actually, as a child, was the real Peter Pan and lived in Neverland and led the Lost Boys in their fight against the pirates. And uh, in, in the story, he goes back to see his grandmother, Wendy, who it turns out is like the original Wendy that he, as a boy, Peter, even though he doesn't remember, used to come and hear her stories. He ends up falling in love with her daughter, stays, grows up, forgets about Neverland. He doesn't remember it at all. And he goes back to visit, and his kids, his children, get uh, abducted and taken to Neverland by the pirates. And, and Peter is panicking. He doesn't know what's going on, and then eventually... Uh, he ends up being taken as well to Neverland. And he shows up and he's, you know, wearing his tuxedo that he was wearing from a night out the night before in London. And he comes across the Lost Boys. And these are the same Lost Boys who he led when he was, you know, the real Peter Pan. And I, I'm about to get emotional because this movie is, speaks to my heart a little bit. And I could just go play by play through the whole script. Let me, let me, let me rush things along here. There's basically a showdown because uh, now that Peter is gone, there's a new sheriff in town as far as who's leading the Lost Boys, and his name is Rufio. Rufio, Rufio, Rufi. Oh. You've seen it. You know what I'm talking about. It's like you almost instinctively, I don't know if you've seen it, you instinctively knew what to do. That was the best part of my day probably. Um, and, uh, and Rufio is not so happy that the original Peter Pan is back because Rufio's got Peter Pan's sword now. Rufio's leading the Lost Boys. Rufio has the coolest hairdo among them and um, rides around on a cool skateboard. And um, he, he's not so happy that, that Peter is back. And so there's this kind of like weird showdown that happens. Some of the Lost Boys are sort of excited at the prospect that Peter could be there. Rufio is not. And so there's this moment where uh, he takes his sword and he draws this line in the sand. And he, and he says, he has this phrase, he says, If any of you says this here scrug ain't Peter Pan, cross the line. He's saying, where does your allegiance lie? Does it, does it lie with this old man or is it with me? Are you going to stand with him or are you going to stand with me? Are you going to follow him or are you going to follow me? And, of course, all the, all the boys, they go over to Rufio's side. Their, their allegiance is being tested. Our allegiance is tested all the time. Our allegiance to God is tested all the time. It's th this question of where do you stand, this is a question that is asked of us when someone offers us that next drink at a party. And the question is, who are you going to follow? This is a question that's asked of you when you're laying next to your boyfriend in the bed. Who do you belong to? This is a question that's being asked of you when you start to panic about all the work that you have to do. Who are you going to follow? Where does your allegiance lie? This is the, the question you're getting asked when the name of a person gets brought up in a rush meeting and someone says something mean about them. What are you going to do? Who are you going to follow in that moment? It's a question that's asked of us all the time. And we answer this kind of question in lots of ways. Where is our allegiance, right? We might say, you know, my allegiance is to my, to my own experience of my own comfort, my own pleasure. When I say, we might say, you know, my allegiance is to my, to my financial future. 
I mean, everything that I'm doing is on this path to lead to this financial future, and that's what I'm following. We, we might say that our allegiance, that what we're following, what we're standing with is our, is our GPA, is our grades. We might say it's what other people think about us, that that's the, ter- that that, that's the thing that's determining what's going on. What we're going to see today in this passage, and it's an incredible passage from Colossians 1, is that only Jesus is big enough and is strong enough and is good enough to be worthy of your allegiance. Only Jesus. And, uh, and we're going to see this in, in, a, in a couple of ways. I, I want to say first that um, every commentator who writes about this passage uh, points this out, that the, the language, the style, the words, the phrasing used, especially in verses 15 to 20, is just a little different than the rest of Colossians. And the reason is because it's a, it's a poem. Paul is breaking forth into poetry in this moment. Uh, and some people even think it was a song that was sung. I, and I, I don't know if that's true or not. But the idea is that there's, there's something uh, special about these words. And so I, I'm not going to be going through it, you know, like verse by verse like I, like I sometimes do. What I'm going to try to do, uh, is, and I know it's going to be insufficient, is to, is to try to draw out what, what feels like to me are sort of the main emphases that Paul's making. And here's what I think is going on, okay? Jesus is enough for our allegiance for three reasons. Because he created us because he upholds us, and because he reconciles us to God. He created us, he upholds us, and he reconciles us to God, okay? So first, Jesus is enough for our allegiance because he created us, okay? This this is the part that starts to get crazy, because what we see here is that Jesus is both the instigator and the fulfillment of creation, the created order, everything that you see, the universe, the cosmos that God made, what we see is that Jesus is both the instigator and the fulfillment of, of creation itself. And, and we see these incredible statements in verse 16 that by him, another way you could translate it is or by means of him, through him, all things were created. And then it says the same thing later. All things were created through him. And, and this is where it starts to get intense because what we're getting a glimpse in here is, to, is the idea of what Christians call the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Trinity is one of the uh, hardest things to explain. Christians have been trying to find uh, easy ways to explain it for 2,000 years, and, and no one has really figured it out yet. I have figured it out. No, I have not figured it out. <laughs> I have not. Here, here's, here's what's basically happening, okay? The idea is that, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, as a man, was born 2,000 years ago-ish, okay? And before he was born, he did not exist. Before that moment where he was born into the world in Bethlehem, in that stable, he didn't exist. But that God is in himself always existed in these three eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God is one and is completely one and is unified and is whole in himself, and yet he exists in these three persons who participate and cooperate together in this one whole united life of God. Three at the same time, one. And so even though Jesus was not alive, was not a thing, was not a person until 2,000 years ago, what this is saying is that the Son of God, who later is made, made, made visible as Jesus, verse 15, the visible God, it's actually through him, it's actually by means of him that all the earth was made. And because the earth was made by him, the earth belongs to him. Which means that because Jesus made you and me, we belong to him. And this is the first reason why we owe Jesus our allegiance is because he is our maker. He is the one who is credited with the establishment of everything, including you and me. 
And, 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 and what we see is that all of creation has this purpose. It says that all things were made through him and for him, which means that the purpose of creation, the purpose of the whole universe is actually to exhibit the glory of God. And so not only is Jesus the one who makes everything, but Jesus himself is the one who exhibits this purpose perfectly. And, and, that's, and that's why we read in verse 15 that Jesus was the, the image of the invisible God. Where have you heard the, word, the, the words image of God before in talking about human beings? It's in Genesis 1, right? That actually, in, in the beginning, when God makes man and woman, they're, they're different from the rest of creation. They're different from the rest of the living animals because they are made in God's image. And, and, and what that means is, here's, here's how... Um, Here's how one theologian, N.T. Wright, explains it. He says that human beings are created to be the perfect vehicle for God's self-expression. That means that the reason God made people was to be the perfect vehicle to explain what God is like, to express who God is. So the reason that the humans are capable of love and intimacy and relationship and grace and kindness and encouragement is because that is what God is like. And that is what he made us to show to the world. And what this is saying is that that is perfectly exhibited in Christ. He is the one who perfectly exhibits this thing. He's the one who pulls off what you and I and every other human ever couldn't quite pull off because of our sin and our brokenness. We don't quite reflect God perfectly. In fact, we're far from it, we know. But Jesus does it perfectly. And this connects to what Paul says about Jesus being the, the firstborn over creation. Don't, don't, don't hear there that Jesus is a part of creation. He's actually the God over creation. But he's the first one. I mean, he's the top dog. He ranks first because he was before all of it. And so the consequence of Jesus being both the instigator and the fulfillment of all of creation is that he has authority over it. He has authority over it. That's why it says that he is before all powers and dominions and rulers, things visible and invisible. It's saying that you know, there's all these authority structures. There's all these ideas of authority in the world. But Jesus is the greatest authority. This is a, this is a really difficult but, but super important aspect of our allegiance, that we owe Jesus our allegiance because he is above any other authority. This is, this is a super unpopular idea in our culture. According to our culture... Who is your greatest authority? Yeah, it's you. It's yourself. You're the captain of your own destiny, right? You're in charge of your own life. And the claim of Christianity is that, uh, no, you're actually under the authority. You actually owe allegiance to Jesus because he is the highest. He is the highest authority. And, and I just want to challenge you with this idea by saying that, um, if it's true that Jesus made us and that we belong to him as people whom he's created, and if it's true that he alone perfectly embodies what it means to be a true human being, isn't it a little ridiculous for us to say to him, you know, no thanks, I think I know better than you how to live my life. We're actually called to put our allegiance in Jesus because he is the one high, true, good authority. That's why we listen to what he says. That's why we read and try to obey. He actually knows what he's talking about. He actually established everything. We owe Jesus our allegiance because, 
because he created us. The, the second thing tonight is that we owe Jesus our allegiance because he, he upholds us. I want to take a closer look at verse 17 here. It says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. Uh, another writer, Sam Storm, says this. This is how he explains this sentence. He says, Whatever coherence or unity the universe displays, it is due to the sustained exertion of power of Jesus. Anything that is together, anything that is held together, is actually held together through the power of Jesus. That literally means that everything from the unimaginable expanse of the cosmos to every hair on your head are held together by Jesus. Your life is held together by Jesus. Your relationships are held together by Jesus. Your future is held together by Jesus. Your body is held together by Jesus. This community is held together by Jesus. Everything is held together by Jesus. And so I want to ask you this. What part of your life seems most chaotic right now? Another way of saying it, what, what aspect of your life is causing you the, the most anxiety, the most stress? Maybe it's the, the romantic relationship that you're in or that you wish you were in or that you used to be in. Maybe it's the drama with your friends. Maybe it's that parents' weekend is coming up and your parents are going to come and what if they fight in front of your friends? And are they going to be disappointed when you tell them you have to read for four hours on Saturday afternoon? How are you going to handle that conversation? Some of you are dealing with this right now. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's just the, the workload. It's just so much you feel like you're drowning. Maybe it's the expectation and demands that other people are putting on your time and your energy and your attention. What, what, what feels like it's in chaos right now? What's, what, what feels like is disintegrating in your life? We, uh, we tend to say things like, you know, I know Jesus is important, and I know time with Jesus is important, but I'm just so busy right now. And as soon as things calm down, as soon as my schedule lightens up, as soon as I get over this next hump, then, then I'll read my Bible. Then I'll go to church. Then I'll have time to pray. Then I'll make it to the small group that my friends have been going to. If only I could get past Parents Weekend. If only I could get to reading days. If I only could get to Christmas break. If only I could get that job offer locked up. If only I could get that bid in the sorority that I want locked up. If only I could get these friends, if only I could get these things, then I would be settled enough, and that's when I'm going to get back to Jesus. And, and the, the problem with this way of thinking is that the further away from Jesus you get, the less time you spend with Jesus, the more disintegrated and the more chaotic and the more frantically busy your life will get. And the only way your life gets less chaotic, the only way your life gets less frantic, the only way your life gets more balanced, the only way your life gets more peaceful is when you prioritize attending to the one who upholds everything in your life. Putting off spending time with Jesus will only make your life more frantic and more frantic and more frantic. And when you attend to Jesus, when you prioritize him, balance comes. And peace comes because getting the job you want will not hold your life together. And getting the bid you want will not hold your life together. And getting the grade you want will not hold your life together. 
It won't. Only Jesus has the power to hold your life together. Jesus is enough for our allegiance because he created us and because he upholds us. And lastly tonight, because he reconciles us to God. What, uh, what Paul's doing here is actually pretty amazing. Because what he's trying to do is he's trying to get us to see just how big Jesus is. Just how great Jesus is. Just how high and lifted up and mighty and glorious Jesus is. And he, and he brings us to a climax in verse 19 where he says, In him, in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God is in Jesus. He's saying Jesus really is the God of the universe. All of the power, all of the understanding and knowledge and wisdom, all of the goodness, all of the strength, all of the love, all of it fills Jesus. Jesus really is the God of the universe. He's preeminent over all things. This is not like a, you know, all religions are created equal, and you can choose to follow Jesus if you want to. It's like, no, he is the real one true God. He is the real deal. And what happens next is amazing, because here's what it says right after this. He says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's verse 20. This Jesus, who was bigger and greater and more powerful than anything you can imagine. Who is God, who is high and mighty and lifted up, died for you to bring you near to him again. And it's important that we remember this because in, in this moment where you're looking at how big Jesus is, how powerful Jesus is, how mighty Jesus is, how lifted up Jesus is, it can be easy to think, how could I know him? How could I see him? How could I get him to give me some attention? How could I get him to turn his affection on me? How could I get him to care about me? Small, insignificant, broken sinner that I am. And the good news of the gospel is that he is so good and he loves you so much that he endured the humiliation of his death on the cross in order to bring you near to him again. That, that's what reconcile means. and means to bring together something that has been pulled apart. That's why he says you were, you were alienated, meaning you were separated, because you were hostile in mind. The only thing you were capable of doing was what evil deeds. But Jesus, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection, that's what it means, this firstborn from the dead, the one who has conquered death, the worst thing that sin can do, the worst thing that sin can cause is death, and Jesus has even destroyed that. He's even over that. That this great God, because he loves you, has brought you near again. He loves you enough that he reconciled you to God, so you should follow him. Because he did what you were not able to do. He brought you near again to God. And Paul ends with this pretty sobering statement. In, in, the, in the midst of this you know, lofty, poetic section about Jesus, <clears throat> he says that all these things are true and that you've been made blameless and drawn near. And then there's this word, if. There's a condition. There's a requirement on you and on me. There's this thing that we have to do to participate, to experience this gift 
of God. And here's what it says in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, if we maintain our allegiance to Jesus. It, it, it's easy sometimes when we talk about God's grace, which is real, which means that God saves us, he loved us, not because we deserved it. To come to a, a verse like this and be like, well, it seems like we have to be something enough. We have to believe enough. And great, grace is real, meaning that everything that we have from God is a gift that is for free. But the Bible is crystal clear. You have to believe. You have to know him. You have to follow him to be included in this. You have to maintain your allegiance to Jesus. And so I, I want to close by trying to, to start a conversation, and I hope you'll come to small groups this week because this is some of the stuff you're going to talk about, about what it means to cultivate a life of allegiance to Jesus. I, I think the first thing that it means is to, is, to, is to cultivate relationships with other people where you can talk about and admit the reality of the ways that you are attempted to put your allegiance in something other than Jesus, usually ourselves. To assume that just because you believe in God, you are always following him all the time is crazy. None of us are doing that. And we need to admit that. And we need to start to pay attention to those times, those situations, when the pressure rises and we turn away and follow after something else. The, the second thing of this, and, and if you hear one thing tonight, I, this is what I want you to hear, okay? It was that we need to radically prioritize the time and the activities and the relationships that cultivate our allegiance to Jesus and encourage us in following Christ. We need to radically prioritize them. And I want to just take a second and remind you that your professors did not make you and have not brought you near to God and do not hold your life together. And your future job does not hold your life together. Your parents do not hold your life together. Your boyfriend or girlfriend does not hold your life together. Only Jesus does. Only Jesus does. So don't go around thinking, I just have to get through this other thing and then I'll attend to God. What you're saying is that I'm putting my allegiance to something over the one who made me. And if that is true, then we're falling away into chaos and to disintegration, to stress and frantic busyness. We need to radically prioritize the time and the activities and, and the relationships that are going to help us cultivate this following of Christ. Okay. And the last thing I'll say, this is kind of a small thing, but uh, hopefully a, a more specific practical thing, is that I think we need to learn how to cultivate uh, thy will be done prayers. Okay, and here's what I mean by that. Jesus, the, the night he's betrayed and arrested, the night before he dies on the cross, is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with his, with his best friends. And he knows what's about to happen. He knows that for God to redeem humanity, that he, the son, is going to have to die. And that he's going to rise again. He knows what he's about to endure. And, and he's praying to God. And he basically says, God, if there's any way that we can redeem our people without me having to suffer, let's do that. Then he says this, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. It's a crazy sentence to say in a prayer. It's a moment of coming to God honestly about what he wants. And we can come to God honestly about what we want. For our life, for our health, for our future. But these words change everything. Not my will, but thy will be done. Because what it does is it changes the way that we are postured towards God to say, I know that I don't know what's best. And no matter what, I'm going to follow you. Thy will be done, not mine. 
The thing that I like to watch on TV that I'm slightly embarrassed about but that I think is amazing is a television show called American Ninja Warrior. <laughs> nice. Uh, it's basically this extravagant obstacle course, but it's, you know, it's super hard and challenging and requires all kinds of you know, agility and forearm strength and uh, speed and the like. <clears throat> I would be very bad at American Ninja Warrior. But there's this, uh, there's this element, there's this obstacle called the rolling log. In, usually, often in phase one. And what the rolling log is, it's literally this, this log that's on a track that is kind of pointed down and you have to get from where you are on one platform down to the other platform. And the only way to get there is on this log which is going to roll down this track. And it's not only going to roll, it's also going to kind of like lurch down a few times. And so what you have to do is you, you, you climb on top of the log on your stomach and you wrap your arms around it and you wrap your legs around it and you lean and it starts to roll. And everything about this log is trying to get you off the log. Gravity is pulling you down. The, the, the centrifugal force, the centrifugal, the force is, <laughs> is pulling you away because it is spinning and then it's lurching and there's not, there's like these teeny little things to hold on to. And basically all you, got, all you can do is just close your eyes. You can't worry about what's underneath you. You can't worry about what's coming next. You just have to hold on and not never let go. Y'all, that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. It's the rolling log from American Ninja Warrior. Like, you cannot worry about what's coming next. You just have to hold on to Jesus and try to never, ever let go. And the good news is that with Jesus, he's not trying to shake you loose. He created you. He died to draw you to himself, and he upholds your life. He is holding on to you. So don't let go. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you hold on to us. And Lord, we long to hold on to you. We, we long to uh, put our allegiance and our trust in you. And, and God, you know all of the places where we are tempted to put our allegiance elsewhere, to turn aside, to, to let go because it's easier or because it feels like we're more in control or it feels like it's more comfortable. Lord, help us to hold on to you. And help us to be the kind of community where friends encourage one another who say, uh, I will hold on with you because you're the only one who holds our life together. Jesus, we praise you in your name. Amen.